House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery on KKNW 1150 AM Seattle and 106.5 FM KCAA Los Angeles. Now, uh, joining me co-host today is, well, we've got a couple of Steves here, but <laughs> Steve is sitting in with me today. Hello, everyone. Welcome. <laughs> and, of course, he's our crime forensics guy, and uh, he's just newly awake because he's been working on his book, the Dahmer book. Um, what's your plan on that? When are you going to get that out? Uh, we're looking at uh, the 10th of this month. We're looking to have it out uh, available for pre-order September 10th. So you all excited? Go on book tours, signings? Well, you know, that, that uh, don't do so much of that these days. It seems that uh, the Internet sort of precluded book signings, but, but we still do some of those. Yeah. Yeah, it's not It's not quite what it was. The The, the writing business is changing. I agree with that. So now today, imagine if you will, um, we're talking about Elvis. Um, did you remember Elvis? Uncle hunk of burning love, Elvis. Of yeah. course. <laughs> yeah, yes. you're from that area, so you um, have you been to Graceland? You know, I haven't. Uh, I live like two hours, two two and a half hours away, and I've, I've never. Never been there, so I, I can't say. I, I've been to his uh, birthplace in in Tupelo, Mississippi, but I've, I've never been to Graceland. You know, uh, we're, so we're gonna we're gonna cover this the the murder and who we've got is uh, Steve Ubaney, and he has written Who Murdered Elvis. He's written a few others uh, about strange uh, murders of of celebrities, and and he has the website whomurderedbooks.com. dot com. Um, we also have that linked with ours, so people uh, check it out. And I've I actually been listening to the book. And uh, let's get Steve. Uh, Steve, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. How are you? Um, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> I say that, you know, because we've been dealing with a lot of smoke in the West. It's, it's, it's almost daily and a lot of 100-degree temperatures and stuff. It's been, uh, it's been uh, really tiring. I'm, I'm getting tired of it. Turn, I can certainly understand that. Turn the off switch. Um, so, before we uh, start talking about the, uh, the <clears throat> book and the evidence, how did you get into writing uh, just the whole Who Murdered series? Like, I know you've got Diana and you've got FDR. You've got a few books in there. It's really interesting. Um, what led you to do this? You know, that's a really good question, and I've been asked that a lot, and I really don't have a good answer for anybody. <laughs> just... <laughs> I mean, I just I just kind of fell ass backwards into it. Um, you know, I went back to college later in life, and I got turned into some poets who I really liked, uh, Richard Hugo, Theodore Rethke, and um, I started to write my own stuff and never intended to write a book, ever. And the professor said, you know, well, you've really got some talent here. Maybe you should think about writing something. And I said, well, someday I will, you know. And I was uh, watching the 30th anniversary of... Presley's death, and they were interviewing people on television who allegedly found the body. And 
I, I've been an Elvis fan my whole life. I mean, my mother has just been in love with this guy, I think, since he w first appeared on television. So I always had that behind me. And I, I grew up spinning the original 45, so I'm a huge Elvis fan. You know, I mean, you're not going to see me walking around with mutton chops or anything, but I like the music, you know. <laughs> you're, not, you're not dressing up like Elvis and... Yeah, no, I'm thinking not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to... So... <laughs> so... I, I'm watching these people, and no one could agree on anything. And I mean, I realize over 30 years, some things are gonna, some things are gonna change a little, you know. But I mean, they couldn't agree on where the body was found. And I'm thinking, and that's kind of a big detail, you know. Um, his road manager said when they got to the hospital, the body was found, and he was found in dead in bed. Then a couple hours later, the same guy said he was dead on the floor. And then he was dead on the toilet, and then he was dead falling off the toilet. And I just said, you know, this has got to be one of the most magical corpses I have ever seen in my life. So well, I just started <laughs> to do my own personal reading on it. And the next thing you know, I, you know, I just kind of put everything together. It was kind of by accident. And I wish I had a better answer. I just, I just don't. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. <laughs> I, I kind of, you know, I just, it, it's fine. I, I like to see sometimes where people come from, you know, when they're, uh, doing yeah. the research and what kind of what's on their mind. Uh, because for me, um, when Elvis died, it was a big deal for my father, who was a, a big fan. And he, he made a, a, a big point of it. And it seemed to me like um, from memory that um, Elvis was found dead uh, in the bathroom um, across the floor. Uh, and uh, he had like 10 or 12 uh, different types of drugs in his blood, and he overdosed. And that was kind of the story at the time. Mm -hmm. And and then so you just move on. and and It's the ever-changing story. That yeah. story and changed and changed, and then it was a suicide, and then it was a heart attack. And, and it seems like it, every 10 years someone has to reinvent something to make a dime. And, you know, I book sales are nice. But I just want to get to the truth of it. I mean, I don't, I'd rather not sell books and just get the truth out than sell all kinds of books and just feast off the specter of this guy. I think they've done that enough. So when I dig into something, you know, I'm really about, I'm really about trying to do the best I can to get to the bottom of it. And there was a lot of smoke and mirrors with this one. Yeah. Now, um, well, there's a lot of money involved, right? Whenever there's that much money, you're going to have. Uh, there's none of it for me, but I can tell you there's a lot of money being made. Yeah, yeah. For that. <laughs> so uh, how do you feel for danger, but Like um, with this sort of thing, when you start talking about, uh, you know, a celebrity like this and, and how they died and you start putting it toward uh, murder and, and you start changing um, the general thought of what happened to Elvis, um, do people get mad at you? People threaten you? Do people... Um, do things to you like are you worried about that uh no i'm i don't even to be honest with you i don't even have really big critics it's 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 really funny um after so many years you know it's been 41 years now so everyone in 2017 all the memphis mafia is now dead um a couple people who knew he was murdered also died in 2017 so we're more many decades past uh, I think if I'd have poked the tiger uh, ten years after or five years after, which I wasn't even interested in at that point, I think it would have been a bigger backlash. Um, I did get threatened one time, which that was kind of funny. I was on television down in Memphis, and I was walking out of the building, 
and I'm walking to my car with my then book agent, and I run across this enormous gentleman <laughs> in a policeman's uniform. And I mean, this guy looked like a sheet of plywood. I mean, he just, he's, this guy was just huge, you know. And he was dressed as a policeman. And I say dressed as because I don't believe that he was. And he walked up to me and he, he said, hey, were you just on television with the Elvis book? And I said, yes. And um, he comes up to me, he's about 10 feet from me, turns sideways and puts his thumb on top of his gun, which is unsnapped, by the way. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be ugly. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> he said, if I think to myself, oh, my God, I'm going to die in the parking lot, you know. Yeah. And he's, if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't be naming any names. And I said, meaning what? What, is that? what does that mean? And he said, you're getting way too close to the truth. And I'm thinking, all righty then. So we got in the car, and I think we had to go to a book signing. And I mean, I think we're going through Memphis traffic at about 150 miles an hour. <laughs> I'm scared in my life, you know. But yeah. outside of that, isolated insulin? No, I mean, I don't. You know, the people who the murderers, uh, I believe the murderer is still out there, but has no vested interest in being known. Um, and everybody else who's really close to it has lived out their full life. So, I mean... I don't think it's as hot button as it once was. Right, right. Times passed. I, I, I was just wondering because he's still um, there's still all the stories that he's still alive. You know, he's oh, okay. working at Burger King or he's uh, you know whatever. There's lots of stories, but there's a ton of people that still go to Graceland, still dress up, still celebrate his birthday, still do all of these things. So he's got a, a huge fan base still to this day. Yeah, and you know the imp and I think it's because Elvis. It was a time period in which he came up. We have to realize that before Elvis, kids had no identity. They were just listening to whatever their parents listened to. So you would sit around the Victrola and listen to, uh, you know, don't sit under the apple tree for God's sake, you know. So Elvis comes. Elvis, could you imagine this? Yeah. You know how much is that doggy in the window? You know, yeah. I mean. So here's Elvis had to pierce the veil who came, he had a rocket ride to fame in 55, 56. He came of age with television and with portable record players. So now for the first time, kids have music of their own. They have their own identity. So then businesses started to realize, hey, wait a minute, we can market to this new segment. That never happened before Elvis, really. Um, and you have to also have to realize that, uh, you know, there would have been before Elvis, there was no black entertainers really getting notoriety. There would have been no Motown. There would have been no Michael Jackson. There would have been no Kanye West, no Beatles, no nothing. I mean, Elvis had to break it. And so, I mean, I've been to Graceland a couple of times, um, and it's been dwarfed by time. You know, you have to put yourself in the 1957 period to realize how spectacular it must have been. Uh, it's It's... It's really quite something when you look at it, and uh, I think everybody should go to Graceland. Not for the awe and the splendor that the building has. It had once. It, like I said, it's been dwarfed by time. Everything gets dwarfed eventually by time. But just to realize that, bow to the master, he made all of this possible and paid an enormous price for it. So now, Graceland, that's kind of a key place as well. Um being the the place of of, of his death, um, 
now he, it, it maybe explain to people what happened like because uh, like i said the story out there is that he uh, uh prescribed a lot of pills medication he was doing tons of drugs he was out of shape uh overweight and he uh and and there's the story that he's constipated and he's on the toilet and he um died and uh, and that's kind of how it was left um how did what what kind of a story or what kind of a setting did you get from uh, from his dying like where did it where did it happen and did it happen that way not even close um yeah, boy how long is this show yeah <laughs> <laughs> how much time we got here how man? much time uh, well you know th- i think well what okay so that's that was the general story and it's kind of shifted around but that was kind of you know what what we were told on the news at the time and that. Yeah, because the news always tells us the truth you know yeah, you know how that is. <laughs> <laughs> <That's true. laughs> yeah i'm really good friends with people who a guy who was at the autopsy his name is dan warlick and um i mean by the way i'm not the only one who thinks this guy was murdered um elvis presley's father Right after he was mur- right after he died, said, "Oh my God, they've murdered my son." And he hired two private investigators to solve his his death and catch the murderer. Unfortunately, he died before they could present what they had because they had some evidence. So my book kind of catches, kind of picks up where Vernon Presley's probe leaves off. Um, Dick Grob, Elvis Presley's chief of security, uh, has a book out, "The Elvis Conspiracy." Um, and I have not met Dick, and you know I hope I do at some point in time. He said right off the guy was murdered. Um, Susanna Lee, one of his co-stars on Paradise Hawaiian Style, always stayed in touch with him. She said flat out, she came on a television in 1978 and said, when are we going to solve the murder of Elvis Presley? She was also living in Memphis at the time. And and she really caught the backlash of that. My God, they sabotaged her car. They tried to shoot her. They burned her house down. You know, I mean, it's just incredible what they went through. And if you go to my website, go to whomurderedbooks.com and go to one of the Elvis pages and you can see a video from Dr. Nicopolis, Elvis's doctor. There's a video clip there saying Elvis Presley was murdered. And it's incredible. It's, it's the most incredible story no one's talking about. And um, it's, it's really something else. Uh, as far as the drugs are concerned, uh, this Elvis Presley was not a stupid man. He was an avid reader. Uh, he was on some prescription medications. He hated street drugs. He's, you weren't going to catch him on cocaine or smoking pot or anything like that. But he had some, uh, his blood sugar was a little high. Um, you know, he had some reasons to take some drugs. And he loved the downers. You know, he, he, he escaped the, the world by taking downers. And when you add that with um, a twisted colon, you're going to have some problems. Because if I, if I prescribe you uppers, you're going to get the runs. If I prescribe you downers, you're going to get constipated. And in the end, the end days of his life, so of course, this is what happened. This is why Elvis, the last concert, looked so pasty and bloated and sickly. The guy hadn't had a bowel movement for a month and a half. So here we are. Fast forward to the death scene. Elvis fell off the toilet. Elvis was not even on the toilet. It would have been impossible. They also said he was playing racquetball a couple hours before he died. There's no way this guy was playing racquetball. I mean, I mean, the the, the story and the disinformation that's out there is just just truly incredible. 
Dan Warlick, who I became really good friends with, who was at the autopsy and dissected most of Elvis Presley's organs, uh, found a wet spot seven foot in front of the toilet where Elvis had regurgitated and or aspirated into the carpeting. You're going to fall off a toilet, you're going to fall three, four feet. You're not going to fall seven feet. Right. Elvis was never on the toilet. You know, and I, like I said, I can't go upstairs at Graceland. By the way, try that sometime. They'll never let you up there. How many people you want walking through a crime scene anyway? Yeah. But <laughs> let's, let's, back up to, let's back up to Dan Warlick. Um, he dissects all of Elvis Presley's organs with a man named Noel Florendo who had the electron microscope. And they took his heart out, and they thinly sliced Elvis Presley's heart in quarter-inch strips. Every, and this is difficult to talk about because I didn't want to know that Elvis was murdered, and I still don't like it. But, you know, I mean, I have, to, I have to tell everybody the truth. So they cut this guy's heart every quarter inch, and they take the slices, they look at him at the light, they put him under the electron microscope, and they file him away. They were looking for a hemorrhage, a blockage, uh, something. Uh, his heart was enlarged, for sure. Dan's words, quote-unquote, he had a big old flabby heart. No blockage, no hemorrhage, no nothing. Elvis did not die of anything heart-related. Okay, so that, I mean, I talked to the guy who did it. <laughs> yeah. uh, Elvis Presley was, uh, like I said, he was a veteran pill popper. Um, Elvis Presley requested from his doctor, Dr. Nicopolis, uh, that he get the physician's desk reference on drugs. And he would study it. And he knew what to take with what. And you show him a pill, and this guy would tell you, it was this manufacturer, you take it at night with this, with food, with blah, 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 blah. And the guy was just incredibly smart. And I got to be friends with someone in the Memphis Mafia, his internal circle of friends, who gave me a lot of information that I, I can't... He's no longer with us. But I still am going to keep my promise that I'm not going to reveal that, uh, who he was. So the reason this happened, the reason why I always became so drug nuts and looking into the research and so forth, is because he was allergic to codeine. And he almost died of anaphylaxic shock in uh, 1969 when they prescribed him codeine for some dental work. So he wanted to make sure, you know, I mean, the guy couldn't breathe. His throat was swelling closed. You know, I mean, it would kind of terrify anybody, wouldn't it? Yeah. So... <laughs> He got to his doctor and said, look it, i got to find out what I can take with what, because I don't want that to ever happen again. So, veteran pill popper, guy who studied drugs, um, guy who had an anaphylactic reaction to codeine. Go to the autopsy. Dan Warlick takes out his larynx. He's looking at the voice box, because they said, we think he OD'd. Well, if all you have is a hammer, you're going to start looking for nails. So they're looking, you're going to pound this nail in, brother. they got to find these drugs. they got to find them because that's what we're looking for. I'm not looking for anything else, mind you. Right. So they look at this voice box, this incredibly well-developed voice box, and um, there's no sign of swelling. There's no sign of nothing. So they take, do a toxicology report at the University of Tennessee, and they find drugs in Elvis, I think it was like three or four, dr four drugs in Elvis' system between the, th the trace and the therapeutic level. Of course, there's different levels. There's trace, there's therapeutic, which is what a doctor would prescribe you for a medical uh, reason, 
and then we go to toxic, which would make you sick, and then we go to lethal, which will kill you. The four drugs that were baldepressants that Elvis Presley took to go to bed every night were between the trace and therapeutic levels, and there was only four of them. Well, that's not sufficient enough. We have to keep looking because we've got this hammer. We've got to pound this damn nail in. So now we're going to go to another um, uh, laboratory for another toxicology report. comes back with virtually the same thing. So Dr. Harold, Harold Sexton, who I believe is no longer with us, took tissue samples of Elvis Presley and sent it across the country to bioscience laboratories in California. We've got to have these tipples, tissue samples analyzed. We've got to find these drugs. Because we're not sufficiently, you know, this isn't good enough. We've got to use this hammer and pound this nail in. Bioscience Laboratories comes back with this litany of drugs, you know, codeine at 11 times the lethal level and this and that and the other thing. And they take this erroneous document and they give it to my friend, Dr. Cyril Weck. Dr. Cyril Weck read to the world that Elvis Presley died of this 1979, ABC's 2020, with Geraldo Rivera, did this this investigation. And Dr. Weck blasts to the world what he has in front of him. I talked to Dr. Weck. He had no idea there were two toxicology done, reports done prior. So the codeine alone would have been at 11, I think it was 11 times the lethal level. But we have a problem. If there's no codeine in the body... How in the hell does it end up in one and only one of the three toxicology reports? Yeah. And you go that, and if you go that far, you've got a conspiracy on your hands. So the next question is, okay, so it's not a heart, not a heart problem. He didn't die of a heart problem. Now we have this drug issue going on. So I have my own theory as to where that information came from. 2020 was about off the air at that time, and every time they tried to reinvestigate Elvis Presley's death, they got their ratings and they were saving the show. I think that was an altered document. I think they needed the ratings, and I also think that there were other things going on to throw people off track from what really happened. So, But Geraldo... <laughs> yeah? Geraldo wouldn't give uh, bad information, would he? No, I don't think so. I think it was higher than him. It was higher, so they just sort of did it, manipulate, and let him take it. And and, and that's just my opinion. It may or may not have been them, but it's awfully suspicious that that came up. And it's just like this Elvis is alive thing. You know, Elvis is at Burger King. Elvis is here. He's become our new Bigfoot. We're finding him all over the landscape. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And the Susanna Lee blew my mind. She said that Elvis had two guys who were stand-ins in the movies who were surgically altered to look just like this guy. So the first four scenes that she shot with Elvis in Paradise Hawaiian style weren't even Elvis. And they would pass in a crowd for this guy. So they did this so Elvis could be laying down the soundtracks for the movie and they could get a jump on the other movies, on, on the other scenes. And he did, like, like, 33 movies, and, and some of them took 30 days to film. It would be impossible for one guy to do all that filming. So fast forward to today, these people are Elvis's age. And this is probably what they're seeing out there. The majority of the sightings are ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, there is a trace amount of evidence, though, that they're finding that Elvis Presley is still alive. 
but it's been planted there. It's been planted there to throw everyone off the scene because the longer we spend looking for a live Elvis, the less time we spend solving a cold case murder. And I'll come back to why this murder happened here in just a second. Um, I think I think that um, people um, there's a there's a certain love or, or worship too that they have with someone like Elvis that they don't want him dead or he couldn't possibly be dead. You know, there's that. Uh, you know, how could that person die? Like they they sort of put someone like that on a pedestal. Well, and rightly so. I mean, four years goes really fast. Yeah. And the last time the majority of people saw Elvis was in 1973, Aloha from Hawaii, when he was in this white jewel-encrusted jumpsuit, and he's all tanned and fit and trim, and he's up there looking like an Adonis, and then all of a sudden he's dead. It just it was so hard for so many people to swallow, because it screws up their normalcy bias. Right, right. You know? And I think that we all have our own little world that we live in, and that just rattled the world. But if you look deep enough, I was on the Elvis as a live camp myself. So I don't, I, you know, I mean, until I saw the whole body of evidence, I thought it was possible that he faked his death and did this and that and the other thing. and The evidence being planted. Well, the and, idea was that he faked his death so he could get away from the fame and the and the, and all of the stuff that comes with it he could actually uh, get back to a normal quiet life um i guess that's the logic behind it right well i, I hope they were half right i would love to think that elvis is alive enjoying himself somewhere doing something cool i would love it it's not true but um you know i i would love it if that was true you know one of uh, one of uh, Elvis's, you know, I tell you what, if Elvis Presley was alive today, Lisa Marie wouldn't be having the struggles that she's having throughout her life. Right. You know, I mean, it comes down to a matter of logic, and I'll explain the murder here in a second. And I have to kind of explain the barn before I talk about the pony, okay? Um, <laughs> you know, Lisa Marie's been through hell, and your heart has to bleed for this 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 kid. You know, I mean, she's, you know, her she's a young girl and her parents get divorced which is troubling enough and then just a couple of years after that happens her father dies in this horrific way and i don't think she'd be struggling through what she's going through if elvis was alive to put her on path um there's that jerry Schilling is one of elvis's went to high school with elvis boyhood friend nice guy um i know people we have friends in common i've never met him i hope i do sometime I think he was one of the true people who really cared about Elvis. Uh, I don't think that all the people around him did, but I think Jerry did. And he t tells in an interview about him getting the news that Elvis Presley died. And he he's just so overwrought, you know, with, distraught with, with grief. He smashes his hand. He punches this concrete wall and shatters his hand. And they have an operation. I don't think he'd do that if he knew Elvis faked his death. It just doesn't wash. Right. It, the whole thing just doesn't wash. You know, we have to come to the realization that there are bad people in this world. And Elvis did a good job of pissing off the mob and the FBI, and you can't do that. You know, it's been done before, and it doesn't go well, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll explain, I'll explain Colonel Parker's involvement in the mob, and then I'll explain how the aftermath of what the investigators found match all the other deaths of people who got between the mob and the FBI. 
So well, people who are seeing the Elvis is Alive thing, are they're kind of eating pizza through a straw. They're finding some evidence, they're getting a taste of it, but they're not finding everything that I'm finding. And it took, I mean, it took decades. I'd love to sit here and say, you know, look, I found all this evidence. It's not even true. I mean, I had, there was 30 years of evidence found before I even got into it. It took me five years of research and write my book. And I think what I did, which is so different from what everybody else did, is I arranged everything and finished Vernon Presley's probe so it all makes sense. Before this, it was an open-ended pinwheel of information going around. And I once I uncovered the coding thing, I said, oh, wait a minute. We've got a problem here. Because the rubber meets the road on the autopsy table. So, I mean, the, the cause of death they gave was cardiac arrhythmia. Right. Well, Elvis just had two head-to-toe uh, physicals physical examinations in the weeks prior to his death. They didn't find any cardiac arrhythmia. There was no AFib. He did one for Lloyd's of London, and he did one for another insurance company. They did cardiograms. They did treadmills. They did everything. They didn't find any AFib. So how are you going to diagnose um, an erratic heartbeat or an irregular heartbeat on a corpse? It's impossible. Your heart's not beating. (laughs) (laughs) The whole thing is... the whole thing is just it's just tied in a knot of lies and stupidity. So what I kind of did is unravel everything. You know, uh, made it a little bit more make sense. And sometimes the truth hurts, you know. Elvis pissed off a lot of people. And his let me let me explain the mob element you find behind Elvis. Okay. Yeah. Um Colonel Parker, Elvis's manager, is a very interesting guy. Colonel Parker was born in the Netherlands. His name was uh, Andreas Van Koo. He was a carnival barker. He started out working in the carnivals, um, first watering the animals, and then he grew up in the circus to the point where he was started to call the shots with the big boys. He wanted to get to America really bad. And he was working part-time on the docks, the shipping docks, to earn enough money to make it. Something happened on May 17th, uh, um, 1929, where he allegedly murdered this woman to the point where he got her from behind with a, with a brick and bashed her brain out. And then that was the time when Colonel Parker was born in America. He stowed on a ship, came to America, went into the Army, and a went in the Army. They got him, put him in solitary confinement. He comes out of solitary confinement with a mental disorder. And here we have this person wandering the streets of America who is already a murderer and a mental patient who has now taken and assumed the, uh, the, assumed the identity of his commanding officer, Tom Parker. And he adds colonel in front of it to give it legitimacy. This is a very smart man, very smart guy. So he starts to... He bounces around America for a while doing little scams. Um, you know, he'd shove a puppy down a pipe and then try and get collect maybe get people to get the puppy out of the pipe. You know, I mean, he was really a piece of work. This guy was a real masterpiece. So he moves on somehow from doing this ridiculousness to managing acts like Vinnie Pearl, Gene Austin, Hank Snow, Roy Acuff, June Carter Cash. Of course, that's Johnny. He goes on to be Johnny Cash's wife and Eddie Arnold. And in managing these people, 
he has to book them in Vegas, and he runs across some serious mobsters out there who run the hotels and the casinos. You're not booking people in, in Vegas at that time unless you're dancing with the devil. That's just the way it is. So some of the people he came up with who, befriend, who he befriended was uh, Mo Dallitz. In the 50s and 60s, there was no one bigger in Vegas than Mo Dallitz. He came out of the Cleveland Syndicate. He was a liquor runner. He owned the Stardust and the Desert Inn. And his true purpose to be out there was also to run the casinos, but he needed to be a close ally to Meyer Lansky and Jimmy Hoffa. Now, Mo Dallas is an interesting figure. He was responsible for making Frank Sinatra, who he was. Very interesting guy. And if you go in my book, like I said, go to whomurderedbooks.com, pick up a copy of Who Murdered Elvis. In my book, you'll see photos of Elvis Presley with Mo Dallas on the on set of G.I. Blues. You know, he financed a lot of Elvis's movies. And they all made money, so they were all warm and fuzzy together. That's one of the people that Colonel Parker had to play games with um, to get what he needed done in, in Vegas, book his ex. He ended up being, Colonel Parker ended up being Mo Dallas's neighbor in Palm Springs. They got to be such good friends. You don't play Vegas without running across people like this and befriending these people. So the, another person that was big was Milton Prell. Milton Prell, uh, in the 1940s, he came out of the Detroit Syndicate. He was really good friends with Colonel Parker. The two became inseparable. And in 1947, he bought the Bingo Club, which was a gambling hall, and he ended up remodeling that into the Sahara in 1952. He also went on to buy the Aladdin and the Mint. Um, ended up being a very, very close ally to, uh, to Colonel Parker. And... Of course, all around Elvis Presley was mob. All around him. The recording studios, the record companies, they were all getting juice from these people. So he couldn't even plan his own wedding, for God Almighty. I mean, he he goes to, uh, he grabs Priscilla and they, they fly off to get married. They fly in Frank Sinatra's, Frank Sinatra's plane. Where do they go? The Aladdin, owned by Milton Perel. You know, I mean, it's, it's incredible how encompassed this guy was with the mob all around him. He may or may not have known. I can't speak for Elvis Presley. I think he knew they were influential people. But it took decades for people to unravel all of this information. So here's Colonel Parker, okay, who has a serious gambling problem. The time Elvis Presley died, um, Parker owed $32 million in gambling debts to the mob wow. because... He could deliver Elvis, who was bringing all kinds of money for the mob, so they just gave him his... Elvis was a huge moneymaker, so they just gave him anything that he wanted. You know, you want to gamble? Here's a marker, just gamble. And this guy was so out of control. We all have our little idiosyncrasies. But, you know, Colonel Parker was probably the biggest degenerate gambler in history. So here we have... Um, Colonel Parker, it was a 25-75 split with Elvis. Elvis was getting 75%. Out of Elvis Presley, 75% of the arrangement, Elvis played for all the business expenses. Colonel Parker gets 25%. Well, the, the movies got to be so terrible that Elvis decided he was going to rebel, and he's not even going to the set anymore. I've had it. And he was telling uh, 
again, Jerry Schilling did a, did a, an interview about this, and he said, you know, Elvis just he lost it. He flipped out. He said, these movies are so bad, Hollywood was laughing at me. He said, here's a script. He said, last, last movie I was a speedboat racer. This movie I'm a motorcycle racer. It's the same damn script. And he got so pissed, and he threw the scripts all over the living room, and he just left. <laughs> so the next day he didn't show up. So... Colonel Parker came up, RCA came up, somebody from the studio came up, and they told him flat out, you're going to do this, or you're not going to do anything else. And they weren't threatening his career. This is the first time I think he started to realize what was going around here. And so Colonel Parker gets him aside and says, look it, the split just went 50-50. And I'm going to backdate it to the beginning of the year. How are you going to stop him? Elvis Presley was in a jail. It was golden handcuffs. Yeah, he could do what he wanted, but not very much. So we have all of this going around with Elvis. Oh, and by the way, the other 25%, he used to be fit, you know, 25-75 and went to 50-50. Colonel Parker was still making 50%. The other 25% was going to the, the mob, something, something they call tribute because he needed to get in the good graces of, of Las Vegas so Elvis could keep breaking these records for attendance and shows. So it's, you have this self-congratulatory system going on. So Elvis was, you know, aware of the grip around him. I don't think he knew the source of it. Um, Elvis was very strangled. He wanted to start doing different material. Colonel Parker, who has this gambling compulsion, said, hey, it's selling, we're making money, we're not changing anything. So here we have this person who's incredibly talented, who's being forced to do material that he doesn't want to do anymore, and he won't, Parker won't let him grow. He wanted to go on and do serious acting. You know, he was offered the starring role in A Star is Born. Right, right. Colonel Parker wouldn't let him do it. Colonel Parker jacked the price up so high on Elvis, it would have been fiscally impossible. Elvis was kept in his place. Yeah, didn't he want like a million dollars and half the profits or something? He was, Elvis was getting a million dollars a picture anyway. I don't exactly know what the deal was. I think it was five. I think it was five million and half the profits, yeah. it, which would have been insane. So here we have Elvis, who is starting to get his life threatened. He's starting to get death threats. Bars go up on the wall, on the windows at Graceland. All of a sudden, they're down, of course. Um, Colonel Parker starts going crazy with alarm systems. Elvis Presley um, goes gun crazy. He has four or five guns on him at a time now. He stands for Sonny West's wedding, and he's best man, and he's got five guns on him. Both boots, holster, I mean, this, this guy's loaded out of his mind here with these guns. And it's because he was getting threatened. So he came to the realization that, look, uh, I'm going to get into martial arts, and so are all of my guys, and I need to carry a pistol legally in all the, all, all the states. So he ends up talking to Nixon, who gives him a federal narcotics badge, which makes it possible for him to get this carte blanche pistol-carrying permit in every state. So one of the things that Nixon requested Elvis to do uh, was in his band – pose FBI agents as band members. He played uh, the International Hotel, which became the Las Vegas Hilton for two months a year. And 
in his in his band in his band were FBI agents being hidden. Their job was to investigate the mob. And one of the people they were investigating was a fellow named Frederick Peter Pro. Frederick Peter Pro, who and I didn't make that name up, I promise I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's like Peter Piper, pick a pack of pickle peppers. No. It's Frederick Peter Pro. He had just swindled. He was part of an international um, mob ring who was swindling people out of all kinds of property. It had been going on for years. Elvis Presley is, was going bankrupt in 1976. And he had a plane that wasn't paid for. And his father had seized control of his finances. And he was trying to sell a plane. And he advertised his plane for sale. And Frederick Pro swindled them out of the plane. So basically it was, you know, look, the plane's a few years old. Um, I'll lease the plane from you. Um, you know, here's some money to get, you know, take out a loan, pay for the upgrades. It's no longer uh, airworthy. And then I'll take the plane and I'll give you back the, the checks. And you'll make more than your money back. Well, they took the plane and they got nothing. So... Um, all of this is going on around Elvis. He's now a federal narcotics agent. He's hiding band members to investigate the mob. He's in the mob. He's in a mob sting over his lost airplane. All of this is going on. So we have the mob element on the colonel's side. We have the FBI element on Elvis's side. And, you know, this is not going to end well. This is not going to end well. So... And back to Elvis with all of these drugs, it boils back to his father seizing control of his finances. You know, they, they make a big deal out of Elvis taking all of these drugs. Well, what was prescribed to Elvis and what he was actually taking were two different things. Dr. Nicopolis w was on Elvis's payroll. He used to travel with him because Elvis did have some health ailments, and I'd be lying if I said he was in good health. He had some issues. Uh, so he just said, look, all the guys want to do these uppers and downers and whatever. He said, just write them in my name, and we'll just put them in the middle of the room in a candy bowl, and whoever can take whatever they want, let them take them. He said, because if you start writing different prescriptions under different names, it's going to throw up a red flag with my father, and I don't want to get an earful. I don't want to hear about it. So they said, okay. So this is how Dr. Nicopolis got nailed for gross prescribing of drugs. Um, he was doing Elvis a favor, and he shouldn't have. He broke the law. Naughty, naughty. Um, but it was basically a candy bowl in the middle of uh, middle of the room, and anybody could just took anything that they wanted. And if there was a couple left, you know, you'd give them to Elvis. But Elvis was not taking everything that was prescribed to him. It would be impossible for anybody to take, I think, you know, it was like 6,000 drugs, drugs that were prescribed to this guy, pills, you know. Um, in, in like three or four months, it would have been impossible for any human being on this planet to do that. So, again, things get twisted around in legend and lore, um, but the rubber meets the road on the autopsy. And, you know, when you talk to somebody who's actually there, it tends to make a little more sense. What was the relationship like between Colonel Parker and Elvis then? Stormy. Stormy. Um... Their 20-year relationship, 20, well, it was 20 years, 50, no, it was 21 years, it was 56 to 77. There reached a point in time where Colonel Parker had lost his financial uh, fiduciary responsibility to Elvis. And he was selling uh, marketing, you know, promotions on the side that Elvis never got a cut of. 
you know, buttons and T-shirts and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Again, he's a carnival barker. This is what he does. So that was uh, um, a little bit of angst there. Colonel Parker was also older. And when we started getting into the psychedelic 60s, Colonel Parker had no idea how the hell the book out. After he got out of this, this movie thing he was doing, Colonel Parker didn't know what the next step was. So it was a stormy relationship. Um, Elvis fired him. Uh, he had to take him back because he couldn't pay him off. For a matter of time there, he had the same, he was with Concerts West, which was the same uh, booking agent that Led Zeppelin was with. But it was a stormy relationship, and they, they were a while there. They couldn't even be in the same room together. Colonel Parker was pissed at Elvis because Elvis was getting sick, and he was starting to cancel tours, which means no money for the colonel, which means he can't pay his mob people, which means there's a, there's a real problem. So you can see the circle and how it's going. Right. So Elvis is having health issues. Um, the colonel tried selling his contract because, you know, I mean, Elvis always sold well. But, you know, it was he was getting harder and harder to manage. And in 1974, Colonel Parker started um, Boxcar Enterprises, where he would make money selling Elvis's image and, you know, other things, which is kind of like the precursor to Elvis Presley Enterprises today. Um, but, you know, of course, they, they were no friends of each other, believe me. So, I mean, Elvis knew it, and, you know, they figured, okay, I'll make a little extra money selling posters and pictures forever. And the deal was grossly unfair to Elvis. But, you know, he um, this is how Colonel Parker started to remove himself from the living Elvis. So he wanted to sell his performance contract and keep Boxcar Enterprises the image contract. So there were a couple people who were interested in Elvis Presley's contract. It came out in the Nashville banner that it was for sale, which was a newspaper at the time. And I don't know if that newspaper's even around anymore, but uh, there was trouble in paradise for sure. Um, there was a couple of one report in specifically that Larry Geller tells another one of Elvis's friends where they were playing at a gig and Elvis had the flu and he was so out of it that he's almost unconscious, and Dr. Nicopolis is dunking Elvis's head in a bucket of ice water, trying to revive him, because he's feverish, he's, uh, he's ill. We know the drill. We've all been there. And Colonel Parker comes in, and Larry Geller is sitting there, and he walks in, and Larry Geller walks up to meet him, and he said, Colonel Parker walks in. Where is he? He said, he's in, he's in the bedroom with the doctor. He walks in, he's in there 30 seconds, comes out, goes nose-to-nose -nose with Larry Geller, and says, tells Larry, according to Larry, the only thing that matters is that that man is on, on stage tonight. Nothing else matters. This is the monster that Colonel Parker was. So here you have this situation brewing. Elvis is getting more and more involved with... Law enforcement, Colonel Parker couldn't be any more involved with the mob, and now we have investigations going on with the mob and the FBI, and Elvis is in the middle of it. So what happened was the people who were gathering information against the mob, um, for, I mean, for the government against the mob in Las Vegas were all caught. They had everything bugged. 
And Elvis Presley died mysteriously a couple of days before he was supposed to turn state's evidence against the mob. And we have this death scene which matches to the T everyone else who ended up in that situation. So now at this point in time, the government's not necessarily very happy with Elvis either. Elvis is greatly abusing his powers of that badge. And, you know, throughout his career, he would go and get honorary badges from, um, you know, states and counties and so forth. Wherever he played, somebody would present him with a badge and this and that. And it was an honorary badge. It was like the key to the city sort of thing. But to Elvis, he took that very seriously. He was a very patriotic guy. So he started to abuse some of those credentials. There's one situation in particular where um, Elvis was... Uh, there was a guy who was with Elvis who Elvis accused of taking his one of his pinky rings. And this guy is on a plane, and he's flying out of Vegas. Elvis runs down the runway, flashing federal credentials, stops the plane, if you can you imagine this, gets on the plane and roughs this guy up. <laughs> Starsky and Hutch. Yeah, I mean, this is like, I mean, you can't even bend your mind around how nuts this is. So the guy sues the airline. Elvis is in the middle of it. Why does this guy have this badge? Why is he doing this with his badge? So you're running into a situation where you've got the mob and the FBI all twisted around in knots, and the focal point of it is this guy. So it wouldn't hurt anybody's feelings if something happened to this guy. And the majority of the money was made after Elvis died. You know, and you have to ask yourself, how in the hell did they have all of those records all pressed and ready to go? How did they have all the shirts, the Elvis shirts, all the posters, everything was all ready to go at a moment's notice on August 16th, 1977? How did they have it all? Really interesting situation. But you have to see the other side of the situation to realize why the Elvis is alive phenomena can't be possible. I mean, I met the guy who took his brain out, okay? The guy's dead. Sorry. You know, I wish he wasn't. But, you know, I mean, you have to come to the realization that, you know, that this guy is dead. You know, I mean, we need to stop. We need to grow up and stop deluding ourselves because the murderer is still out there. And no one seems to care. It's it's, it's astonishing to me. Stephen, okay, I've been listening, and all, all these people, I mean, Elvis obviously had a stacked deck against him, uh, especially there at the end. In, in your opinion, uh, who had the most to gain? Was it the government? Was it Parker? Uh, and is it different from the person or the people that you think actually murdered Elvis? Well, in my book, that's a great question. Home run question. I'm going to answer it partially. <laughs> <laughs> In my, in my book, in all of my books, I find, I take all of the subjects, all of the persons of interest, and I take them through motive, means, and opportunity. And I come out with the one person who could have answered your question. Um, which I'm not going to answer. I answered it, but I'm not going to answer it. You know, I mean, I want, uh, you know, I'll send you a copy of the book. Send me your, send me your, uh, your address. But. <laughs> I don't, want to spoil, I don't want to spoil the book for you or anybody else, you know. But um, I'll say that the mob got well paid off. Colonel Parker was able to pay his gambling debts and then some. 
Okay. That much I'll t- that much I'll tell you. Um, the uh, the mob definitely made out. The mob definitely made out, and the government got rid of something they didn't really want in the first place. They didn't want Elvis Presley to have a narcotics badge, you know. And yeah. especially when he's running around abusing it to the level that he's abusing it, it became preposterous after a while. But um, you know, Elvis was a he was a good guy. He was a patriot. He was a really, really cared about the people around him. Um, and it can, frankly it pisses me off when people pick apart the cracks of this guy and everything that he did for our country. And, um, and it's, it's really kind of sad when you think about it. I think he deserved a hell of a lot better than he got. And if it's hard to look from the outside in in a situation than look from the, you know, nobody looks at it. One of the Beatles said, I'm trying to think, it was John. I think it was an interview with John. He said he always felt sorry for Elvis. He said because the four of them had to be in agreement to do something. And they always felt sorry for Elvis because he had no one with him. It was him against the world. Very difficult situation to be that guy. Yeah. yeah. So what do you, how, did, how did they manage to cover this up? Disinformation. Yeah. And a lot of it. And it's still going on. It's still going on. The Elvis is Alive thing. Actually, Colonel Parker started the Elvis is Alive thing because it helped things sell better. And go on Graceland's website. They have a thing there for Elvis sightings. They're still doing it. They're still doing it. You know, it, it keeps, it's the fantasy of, of the man. You know, I mean, it's much easier to sell the sizzle than sell the steak. And you don't have to split, you don't have to split royalties with a dead guy either. It kind of works out well, you know. Yeah, it gets easier. Uh, the girlfriend at the time, uh, wasn't she the one that said he was, uh, she found him on the floor? Oh, boy. Um, everybody's story changed so many times. They said, yeah, that he was, first she said, first she had him falling out of a chair. Then it, he found, she found him in front of the, in front of the toilet. Um, this is, like I said, this is one of the most magical corpses I've ever seen. So in the middle, in the middle of this drug cult that you have, and let's call it what it is, it's a pill cult. You know, the guys were all hooked on uppers, and you know, I mean, they had a pill cult going on. In the middle of all of this, are these witnesses who were probably semi-sober at the time. Um, you know, it'd be impossible to really track everything that's going on. But I do want to talk about that death scene. Okay. Okay. They find Elvis, who has been dead for hours, hours, and they have a thing called liver mortis. Rigor mortis, of course, is the tightening of the muscles after we die. We know this. Liver mortis is when the blood stops circulating through the body, and it will pool on the lowest levels. So if you die on your back, you're going to get the black, blotchy purple on, on your back and your butt. Okay. If you die on your face that's where liver mortis is going to be. You're going to get that purple, blotchy blue on your face because that's where the blood is pooling. Um, Elvis Presley was in such bloated, terrible condition when they found him. He was probably dead for almost a day before they found him. So no one can agree on what time the body was found. Um, I mean, all of these things are just so damn sketchy, and it's incredible, really, that you have all these people that, I mean, can't agree on, I mean, major league things they can't agree on. So they take him to Baptist Hospital in the ambulance. 
They're met on the way out by Dr. Nicopolis, who jumps in the ambulance. They take him to Baptist Memorial, which was not the closest hospital, by the way. Um, they take him there, pronounce him dead. While he's there, Joe Esposito is his road manager. They put him on camera, and he announces to the world that Elvis was found dead in bed. Two hours later, the same guy said he was dead on the floor. What the hell's going on here? So Dan Warlick, who was Jerry Francisco, who was the medical investigator, um, the medical examiner is Jerry Francisco, I'm sorry, who ironically was the same medical examiner who botched Martin Luther King's autopsy in Memphis, because both guys were murdered in Memphis, same, same medical examiner. Dan Warlick was the investigator for Jerry Francisco, who died last year, who I became very good friends with who started to come around to the realization that there was an awful lot to this story than what was told on the autopsy table. So he, Jerry Stouffer, and there was uh, another guy, uh, one of the lieutenants, Jerry Stouffer was the uh, assistant district attorney, and the lieutenant from the um, uh, from the police at the time in Memphis, and his name is escaping me, uh, McCochran, Lieutenant McCochran, they go to, to the crime scene or the death scene. They walk up the stairs. They see Vernon Presley doubled over in grief, they've killed my son. Who in the hell is they? You know, so these mental gymnastics start going on with these people. So they get in Elvis's walk in the office, looking around at this extremely palatial upstairs, which is all soundproofed, perfect place for a murder, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, this was a notorious, uh, he wouldn't sleep for days. If they didn't give him those downers to sleep every night, he was a notorious insomniac. So here we have all the windows are blacked out, sound padded all the way around, completely soundproofed. This is his fortress of solitude. This is his favorite place, the upstairs at Graceland. Graceland's a house within a house. The house itself is like Michael Corleone's compound in The Godfather too. Bars on the walls, gates, guards, guns all over the place, closed-circuit TV cameras, uh, interesting parallel. So here they go. They're going to the death scene, and they walk into his office, and right in plain sight is a drug syringe. And Dan, Dan explained it to me as the type of syringe that it wouldn't have a needle. It was almost like a caulking gun where you would put a cartridge of medicine in there. It was kind of a frame. But there was nothing in it, no needle, no nothing. So they look at it, and their minds are racing. They walk into Elvis's bedroom, and they observe his eight-foot-wide bed, mind you. I mean, this guy was real something. <laughs> so, um, and they're looking around at all of this. It's lavishly decorated in 1970s decor. Um, and they walk up to the Anwar, and again, another drug syringe. And there's guns everywhere. Pistols, automatic rifles. I mean, Elvis went gun crazy. So they feel all the guns. The guns are all cold. And here's another syringe. Couldn't miss it. It was right in plain sight. It was almost like it was put there for them to see. So they go into his bathroom, which was Elvis's favorite room in the house because it was his reading room and his dressing room. And it was far more than just the bathroom. No one got in without permission. This was his place. And he had a black leather barber's chair that he would recline in and read his library of books. 
So they walk in. There's a black leather Dockers bag sitting on the on the vanity top. It's open. There's nothing in this Dockers bag. Not even a baby aspirin. There's no drugs in this house. Not a Tylenol, not a baby aspirin, not a nothing. So they're looking, and then it dawns on Dan, this place has been all sanitized. The drug scenes have been made up. They've been sanitized. The bed's made. So they meet the, the um, EMTs, Charles Crosby and, uh, oh, his name is escaping me, Ulysses Jones, there you go, who went on to be uh, in government in Tennessee, who actually stopped talking about this when he got into the government in Tennessee. Um, they're saying that there was a signs of a struggle. There was, you know, there were uh, things on the bathroom vanity, aerosol cans and everything that was all... Uh, Elvis had thrown a book, apparently, that hit the vanity top, and it knocked everything all over the place. There were papers all over the place. There were signs of a struggle. All of that was gone. So they said that he was... Now, all of a sudden, um, Joe Esposito, who said that he found the guy dead in bed, is up there, and he's leading people through the rooms. He's now the tour guide for the investigators. He says that he fell off the toilet. What happened in those two hours? Who did he talk to? Who changed his mind for him? Very strange. Joe is also not with us. So, he, he again, he died uh, 2017 along with almost everybody now. So, they of course, they all died of natural causes, and I'm not going to go there. You know, I'm not that guy. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you got to put your feet on the ground here, you know. So, um, Dan sits on this toilet. Three foot, four feet, doesn't see any signs of any sort of anything. Goes on the floor, six and a half, seven feet, here's a wet spot. Bends down, sniffs, cleanser is what he smells. This entire death scene has been sanitized. How very convenient. But no one can remember giving the order to sanitize this. So now when the, when the body goes down to the hospital, the police have this on lockdown. They are standing guard at the foot of the stairs, and no one can get up. Did the police do it? No one knows. Very interesting. So if you look at this, the mysteriously sanitized death scene, it matches other people who got across the mob in the FBI. Sonny Liston. Sonny Liston was supposed to lose to Chuck Wepner. The mob was very involved with Sonny, with Sonny Liston's camp. He beat Chuck Wapner so bad the guy had to have his face stitched up like a football. He mysteriously was found dead with drug syringes around with a sanitized death scene. Nude from the waist down, just like Elvis Presley, just like Mussolini. This is a calling card. This is something the mob does to tough guys. Uh, you know, I mean, JFK. JFK's body is in there, and they're trying, they're trying to resuscitate him. The Secret Service is cleaning the blood splatter out of the limo. Are you kidding me? Marilyn Monroe, her death scene was sanitized. She had liver mortis on the wrong side of her face. Usually when you have liver mortis, that's going to be the side that's down, not in Marilyn's case. That death scene was also sanitized. But, of course, no one ever gives the order. How oh, very convenient. There were no photos taken of, um, of Elvis. The only photos that were taken, the notes and anything, we're in Dan Warlick's car that night 
left on the seat of his car. He goes up to his apartment. He comes down in the morning. His car has been burglarized. The only thing it's ever missing are the notes from Graceland, the photos from Graceland, and the camera. But again, this is the greatest story that no one's talking about. And if it wasn't for me out there telling people this, no one would have put all this together this way. I mean, other people have. But, I mean, no one has really put it into, you know, the planted drug syringes. Suspiciously like the pristine bullet they found on the stretcher. The plant, the, you know, the planted uh, bullet hung Oswald as the patsy. The mysterious drug, drug uh, 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 toxicology report hung Dr. Nicopolis as the patsy. So you start to see parallels with this. For Elvis Presley, there were two death certificates filed. So you start to wade through this, the insane amount of evidence here. And it, it's, it's really, I mean, it gives you, uh, gives you a headache, actually, after a while. So, interesting book. Um, go to whomurderedbooks.com, whomurderedbooks.com, buy a copy of Who Murdered Elvis. Um, the fifth anniversary edition is out this year, and it's everything that happened after the first book came out in 2013. It's a hell of a read. It's yeah. really something. And you guys got to give me your addresses. I'll send you a copy. Hey, you know, uh, can I ask, uh, the? Um, have you talked to um, any of the family, like the, the daughter or the ex-wife who kind of has Graceland now? Have you got any opinions from them? Well, and I don't think I'm going to because uh, she just came out with an HBO special that said that all of a sudden now Elvis committed suicide and there's a suicide note. Which, oh. I, I don't know why there, there wasn't a suicide note for the first 40 years he was dead, but all of a sudden now there's a suicide note. Suspiciously now, when um, Lisa Marie is having huge financial trouble, and suspiciously now that everyone in the, in the uh, Memphis Mafia died last year, now there's a suicide note. So um, I'm very grateful for those people to keep for keeping Elvis Presley's image and likeness and everything alive and fresh and out there, but we're not going to agree on certain things. So um, I hate to tell you that to tell you this. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, don't, I, I, I thought I'd ask. They, they profit from it. I don't. You know, I mean, they're going to continue to profit from whatever they're hawking. And I'm not. I Like I said, whatever I make or don't make on the sale of my books is good with me. I just want the truth out. They can't say that. So, I mean, I'll, I'll answer your question that way. Okay. Well, <laughs> very interesting, very interesting. And uh, so have you heard anything from anybody that was around the scene or um, that kind of disagrees? Not really. I did get contacted by. Of course, you're going to have people who disagree with everybody all the time, uh, right. you know, because again, you're you're shaking their normalcy bias, and it's you know people don't want to think about this. I didn't want to know that Elvis was murdered. I didn't want to think about the fact that he might have been in trouble. You know, I mean, you have these people in your mind who you kind of like to hold harmless. So when somebody like me comes around and, and puts everything together in a logical and factual way, you know, we don't we don't really want to take that medicine, do we? So I really don't have any huge critics. I'm sure they're out there. 
Um, but the person, the only people who have contacted me have contacted me with more and more evidence of the murder, which is incredible. Susanna Lee, I did not know. Susanna Lee was Elvis's co-star in Paradise Hawaiian style. She found me on, I think it was social media somewhere, and she sent me a message and she gave me her phone number. She said, can we talk? She said, I also have evidence that Elvis was murdered. I said, well, yeah, sure. You know, this was, what, two years ago now? A lot of conversation with Susanna, who lost her battle with liver cancer last year. Um, the things that she told me were just incredible. When she came out in 78 and poked a tiger, boy, she got bit. So she had she had evidence as well. Uh, and she's, she just published a book, I guess, uh, just before she died that, again, saying that Elvis was murdered and so forth. And... Um, pointing some fingers at some people on the inside, which I'm not going to do. So, um, you know, I mean, I've been kind of contacted all the time by people who, who believe that he was murdered or who was in harm's way. But, you know, I don't, I don't, it's tough to think about, isn't it? It really yeah. is. And I don't really get any sort of satisfaction out of it. Um, it was just something that um, I was fascinated with, and I, I felt like I had to. I mean, when I discovered that this guy was murdered, and with the whole story, I walked around for the better part of a year with this cloud over my head, you know. And finally, one of my friends said, oh, my God, you've got to snap out of this. You've got to write this book. I said, they're going to think I'm out of my mind. He said, so let them. You've got to. What would Elvis tell you to do? And I said, well, he'd probably tell me to tell the truth. He said, well, then write the book. So it's tough to go out on a limb and a branch and a twig. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. it's tough, you know? And, and so, so it kind of looks toward uh, Colonel Parker as, um, you know, a big, a big influence here, a big, uh, a big issue as, as far as, as the, the death. The, and um, how did, how did uh, Colonel Parker deal with it afterwards? Um what, did he just kind of take over Elvis's uh, affairs and estate? Well, he went. We went to the um, to the funeral, and uh, he went to the funeral, and he's hanging out in back. Of course, everyone is meticulously dressed in black, with black ties. And the Memphis Mafia looked like they were they were so perfectly manicured; they looked like they stepped out of a bandbox. And here we have Colonel Parker with a baseball cap on with wild tufts of hair, gray hair, popping out from underneath in a Hawaiian shirt at the funeral, for God's sakes. <laughs> Sitting in back, talking to no one, not looking at the casket, doing his, his level best to divert his eyes away from the casket. They put the casket in the hearse. He walks up to, and I know people who are there. I got a first-hand account, and I'm, oh, boy. I would love to be able to tell you who told me, but on their deathbed, they said they would haunt me if I did, so I better not. So, <laughs> so um, Colonel Parker walks up to Vernon and says, sign everything over to me. And, and you got to remember that the estate's in bankruptcy here. Vernon, Vernon Presley, Elvis's father's hands are tied. He's got to get some money into this estate. So he signs everything over to Colonel Parker. So, I mean, Elvis is just in the hearse. He walks up to, to, uh, Colonel, uh, to Vernon and says, um, I'm flying off to make it a business deal. Let's get to work. 
That's what he thought of his 21-year friendship and career managing Elvis Presley. Flies out of town, and he goes to meet a guy named Larry Giesler, who was the same guy who did all those Farrah Fawcett posters in the 70s. Right. And he, there was no mourning for this guy. There was no mourning for him at all. You know, we have a guy who remained the same mental patient that, in my book, I lay out um, the mask of a psychopath. And it's it's a, a work written by a psychologist, and it talks about, it's the name of the book is The Mask of Sanity. And it says, imagine if you're roaming around and you have no remorse, you have nothing behind your eyes than just what's on your mind, your agenda. And that's what Colonel Parker was. He was just, he was incredibly, incredibly smart, uh, very shrewd, great doing, what he did best was take care of Colonel Parker. And if you were in his path of something that he wanted, boy, did you pay a price. So um, to answer your question, there was no remorse, there was no anything, and everything was signed over to Colonel Parker to cut Vernon and the estate into a percentage. And that's that's basically how that went. And, of course, Colonel Parker had this. He had full control of everything until the battle with um, uh Priscilla and um, Elvis Presley Enterprises uh, in, the, in the 80s, they hit a hell of a legal battle as to who was going to take over what. And uh, it got settled sufficiently where Colonel Parker signed over the stuff and, you know, the, the legal agreement and then rode off into the sunset with fistfuls of cash. So it was a very, you know, this little boy who was born in Tupelo, Mississippi, sure as hell created a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what Incredible talent, and he he just he got abused. You know, he got abused by the people around him, and it was it was really a sad situation. But I'm certainly glad that I was on planet Earth at the same time he was, so I could uh, I could enjoy all of his music, and I think he deserves that. So I'm no I'm no spokesman for Graceland, but if you haven't been to Graceland, go to Graceland and bow to the master, because <laughs> way he impacted us is 20-fold. You know, Ch Chilean miners who got stuck in their tunnel, they weren't singing Beatles songs. They were singing Elvis songs. You know, remember that when they got stuck in the cave, the miners? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, you go halfway around the world, you got people with no running water in a grass hut with a picture of Elvis in there. You know, I mean, it's incredible how... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty amazing. How, how did uh, Tom Parker end then? Like, he died of, uh, what, a stroke or a heart attack or something? I think he, he died of the effects of a stroke. You know, he was still gambling to the very end and doing all kinds of, you know, he, he certainly uh, gravitated to his compulsions, that much I can say, but he died of the effects of a stroke. And I believe he died, well, I can't remember what it was. I don't remember when he died because it wasn't important to me. Yeah, no. <laughs> he probably died in the 80s sometime, I don't know, late 80s. And so Elvis had a decent relationship with, with President uh, Nixon at the time to get his badge, or, or how did that come about? Was that just, like, I, that just seems strange to me. Well, it's strange to a lot of people. Um, Elvis Presley was a sure-tail relative of Jimmy Carter. He, he got tired of the hippie element. He was fed up with the psychedelic stringy, long-haired, protesting crap that became the late 60s. And, you know, he wanted to see if he could help. 
and he also wanted the, the, the title, the credential to carry the guns. So those two things led him to the, uh, to the White House. Um, Colonel Parker, on the other hand, had befriended LBJ. And Colonel Parker had a little logo that he used, which was um, a stagecoach. It was sketched out, and it was his personal logo that he used for boxcar enterprises. And LBJ, they met at a barbecue somewhere, and LBJ was running for election. And Colonel Parker let him use that logo for his election. You know. So, I mean, these guys couldn't have been more baked in the cake um, on both sides, on on the governmental side or the mob side. It was very interesting. So that's how, you know, Nixon was in a spot. He was gross. He was incredibly unpopular at that moment in time. And here we have this guy who was America's sweetheart coming in the Oval Office um, requesting to help out. So, I mean, you have to put yourself, it's very hard to put yourself in the shoes of both sides. So, I mean, you gotta, you gotta admire this Elvis. I mean, the, the gall this guy has. You know, I mean, he walks into the Oval Office with four guns on him. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's just incredible, man. It really is, you know. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really something, but, you know, the, Elvis was really, um, incredibly generous. You know, he bought people houses and cars and, uh, after he died, there was there's a monument. Well, I wouldn't call it a monument. I would call it, uh, yeah, I guess we can call it a monument. And it's in Graceland, and as you're going into the trophy room, and it's to Elvis. It was posthumously um, sent, and it's a big glass thing. He was supporting over 30 families in and around Memphis just out of his pocket because they were needy and they just couldn't they couldn't make it. So he was, you know, out of his pocket. He wasn't even telling anybody. They didn't know about this until after he died. He was just supporting these people. You know, if they needed a new wheelchair or whatever, I mean, he was just writing the check for it. So, I mean, we have a dichotomy of this person who um, had tremendous intentions, very smart guy, terrific entertainer, who got caught up in things far beyond his control. Yeah, pretty pretty amazing. Um well, it's been it's been a great story. I I I love listening to this. Um, now, tell people how to get a hold of you, or if if, you, if someone has some sort of information, or if they want to communicate something to you, how's the best way to do it? I would go to whomurderedbooks.com and fill out the contact form there, which will go to my my agent, and then I'll get it somehow along the way. Um, I hope I get it better than I got the uh, the invite to be on your show. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it all works out in the end, you know. It all yeah. Works out. So anyway, that's how you do it. Um, you can get me, and people have. I mean, the majority of people have been very supportive because, you know, I'm not. I just want the truth, whatever it is. And there's still something. There's a germ seed in each one of us who likes the truth, truth, justice, in the American way. You know, and um, I don't, you know, I'm not going to be uh, a Hemingway. I'm not going to be a famous author by any means. What I tried to do and what I did was take on a subject that was very, very near and dear to a lot of people's heart and put a finite answer to it. So, um, you know, I'm not getting attacked. Uh, I'm getting a lot of positive feedback. And um, I like that. And I mean, it's nice to hear from people who are buying your books and, and so forth. And um, you know, it's 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 been a trip. It really has. It's really something else. I also wrote. There are other books out there. 
I'm writing an entire Who Murdered book series. The first one was Who Murdered Elvis. The second was Who Murdered FDR. And the, the evidence that I've uncovered from Who Murdered FDR was incredible. Um, I have one. I have one of uh, the documentation. You can put. You can, you can reconstruct history correctly. Decades and decades and decades after famous people die, because deathbed confessions come out and diaries are published, and you know, there's a there's a release of information where you can go reassemble history. And in the case of FDR, one of his favorite uh, cousins, Daisy Suckley, wrote published her diaries. It was entitled "The Closest Companion." Came out in 1990, and on one of the pages in her diary. She she has an entry about the president feeling poorly and being on the sofa for the fourth day today. And she was asking Admiral McIntyre, who was a Navy admiral doctor who was charged with the responsibility of FDR's health, what the problem was. His response, it's some sort of poisoning, but we can't ascribe anything to it. Oh. There you go. There's another one. I see you're also going to get into who uh, murdered Diana. Princess Diana is starting, I'm going to start writing that November 1st, and I, I research and write all my own stuff. I know people have teams that do that. I can't do that. You know, I can't, whatever I write, I like to back up and be as close to the truth as I can with a document or taking something from someone's lips or a first-hand account, and I can't do that if I have somebody else do my research, so... Um, Princess Diana is going to be the next one. That's going to be you know, volume four, and that'll be out sometime in 2019, the summer, I think, of 2019. Um, I've got my hands full with this one. Oh, yeah. And there's no doubt that she was murdered. I was, I think I was the first person ever to say, when that happened, I said, oh, she was murdered. And I remember I was in the pool in Vegas. <laughs> Yeah. You remember where you were when things happened. You know, I remember where I was when Elvis died, and the world stood still. You know, yeah. and as soon as I heard Princess Diana, I said, "Well, there's more to that story." And everybody looked at me like I was out of my mind. You know, apparently I'm not so out of my mind anymore. You know, it's kind of funny. It's funny how that works. <laughs> yeah, it works itself out. Well, again, our guest has been Steve Ubaney, and the uh, website whomurderedbooks.com. That's going to be on our site as well. Um, we look forward to talking to you again. Well, I certainly appreciate the time you gave me. It's an honor, and I look forward to future conversations. I'd love to be on your show again. To find out more about our show, guests, or listen to a previous show, visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com. show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.